story, it'd be quite a while, but I do this morning want to start off this little series for this month talking about the realities around the death uh, and resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, and I want to read to you this today from verse 35 to 46. Um, um, uh, just be aware too, uh, you obviously are, but there seems to be a bout of uh, sickness going through the community, whether that's common coughs or colds or COVID or whatever. Uh, just be aware of being prayerful for people. Um, obviously, it's uh, hit quite a few families, even in our church. And the, the sad thing is, is, is even if they're uh, not showing any symptoms, they've got a, they're isolating at the moment because maybe one of the family members... Uh, so Pastor Malcolm and Sandy <laughs> are not here today uh, because Sandy has uh, uh, some symptoms. She has COVID. So the whole, you know. Anyway, it's all happening, isn't it? But praise God, he's still on the throne, isn't he? Uh, and uh, we appreciate you guys here being here. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, 35. It, and I'll just read about, um, about 11 verses. It says, then, uh, then they crucified him. That's being Jesus. And they divided his garments and they casted lots that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Uh, that was, who was that? That was probably the uh, soldiers who crucified him and also all the, the, uh, some of the people who followed uh, Jesus sat down. And they put up over his head the accusation written about against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then uh, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, "Who, uh, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And likewise, the other priests um, also... Uh, Sorry, the chief, likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He, do, you know, do you know the, why, the reason why Jesus, it's not that Jesus couldn't come off the cross. He could have. But he didn't because you know what compelled him? It wasn't just nails in his hands and his feet. It was the incredible love he had for humanity. He couldn't do it. He was halfway through the process of dying on the cross. He says, I've got to see this through for the humanity. And we'll talk more about that. Uh, so they're, they're mocking him and he's saying, come down off the cross. He could have saved himself, but he chose not to. Um, uh, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he, if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him re reviled him with the same thing. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, um, there was darkness over all the land. That's from about, I think, nine o'clock till midday. And about the ninth hour, midday, uh, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, li, uh, lama shabakathinai. That is, my God, my God, why have you, what? Forsaken me. Um, here we have uh, an incredible story of sacrifice. Humanity, over through the centuries, has always admired and honored the people who give their lives for the sake of others, no consideration of their own, uh, their own well-being. And we've got many examples of it. In actual fact, uh, you know, uh, if we were to look at just the days of remembrance we have across Australia, for instance, Anzac Day, 
when we remember both Australian and New Zealand soldiers who died in the beaches of Gallipoli in 1915, the First World War, on the 25th of April, um, literally jumped out of their boats onto that beach and mowed down, and there didn't even die in the water, many of our Australian and New Zealand um, uh, uh, soldiers. And, you know, we, it seems to be a growing um, sense of honour and respect and admiration we have for those people who've gone before us so that we can have the freedom that we have today in our country. And, and I don't want to glorify war at all in any way, but I just want to say we admire the reality of self-sacrifice, don't we? If we were to look at World War II, uh, you know, 1939 to 1945, there's a myriad of stories of men and women who gave themselves uh, for, the, uh, reali- for the sake of their country uh, so that people could live and uh, have a life. And... Um, You know, I was just aware Christ, of course, gave up his life for the sake of not just a country and not just for a group of people, but he gave up his life for humanity, all people. Uh, And and Jesus wasn't at war, and yet he fought for the souls of people right to the end and still does today, doesn't he? That's the reality. And unlike um, maybe the stories of, uh, of you know, of, of uh, Gallipoli in World War I or, you know, World War II, the fighting that happened, uh, incredible um, self-sacrifice that happened of men and women across, that, uh, across those times, um, they, they died, I, I think, those types of, you know, war times, they died because of the sins of others. They died because of the criminal acts and the terrible things we did do to each other in war. But Jesus Christ also died because of the sinful acts of others, but he just didn't die because of it, he died for them. That's the difference. He just didn't die because of what they did to him, he he gave his life so he could die for them. Even for the people who nailed him there, he said as he hung on that cross, which Father, one of the things he says is, Father, would you forgive them for they really don't know what they do? You know, that, that would be a struggle. If, if someone's beating me up or something's happened to me, to actually, at first, I, I, I hope eventually I'd better say, Father, just forgive them. And I suppose over my lifetime, there's been times when things have happened to me and I've, and, and, and I've had to just say, God, I can't hold this to myself. I've got to forgive. But it's only through the power of what I see through Jesus' example and His presence, Holy Spirit. So we see Jesus died because of terrible crimes, but he died for the terrible crimes, for the sin. And, and Matthew here makes a statement that only is recorded in two of the four Gospels, Mark and Matthew. And Matthew says, he gives an account of the crucifixion of Jesus, but he says something very clear in his last verse that I read. He, he quotes the question Jesus asked on the cross, the only question Jesus asked on the cross. And that question is, my God, my God... Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is literally talking to God, his heavenly father, his close, closest of companions, saying, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me at this needy moment? And it's a question that is interesting in the light of the fact that while we all admire those who sacrifice their lives for someone else, was not God also proud of his son for giving his life for humanity? Was not God wanting to say, well done, Jesus, this has always been the plan. Why did God actually abandon Jesus on the cross? And why did then Jesus so much sense that, that he had to declare, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, 
the answers for those questions are found in the very statement that Jesus made. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to explore that just for a moment today because I think it has incredible uh, impact upon how we live our lives. In actual fact, you're living in the grace of what Jesus said there. And I'll show you why. You're living in that right now. Uh, And let me explain it to you. So let me give you three things today in regards to why God did abandon Jesus. Just for that moment, because he didn't abandon him forever, but for that moment on the cross. Um, The first thing is so that Jesus could take away what no one else could take away, which I've already implied to. What was the one thing Jesus could do that no one else could do? And that's take away the sin of the world. Now you may say, oh, big deal, you know. Unfortunately, I think the world more and more has got a, a conscience that's becoming more and more seared to the reality of what they do wrong. And that's a sad, that's sad, I think. Because sin... It's just not what we do to others, but what sin does to you. It's like a cancer that eats at your soul and the guilt and the shame of that. And sometimes what happens is, is we like to, uh, we like to uh, uh, reflect that. Or sometimes we like to reflect that sin and, and say this, uh, you know, it, 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 it wasn't so much me, it was them. They did it. it wasn't a, yeah, I was around, but it was really... And we like to reflect sin today. Sometimes we like to relocate sin well, you know, what we do is we say, it's not my fault. Sometimes what we try to do is we try to bury sin. We try to just bury it because we just don't want to be, think about it. We just don't want to be a part of it. And so we, we bury it and we put it under the whatever proverbial carpet and we say, let's not think about it. But unfortunately, the sin creates, a, uh, it creates a, a, an emotion within us called shame and guilt. And, and you know what? It'll fester and fester. And whether it's for a week or a month or a year or for a decade or for a long time, it'll finally come up until it explodes in some way or, or it finally you know, erupts in some way. Just like that pimple that you just bang all of a sudden it bursts we wouldn't know about those type of things a lot of us don't have pimples I remember them when I was younger but it's like that you know so sin we try to relocate reflect bury I always remember my 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 precious loving sister my eldest sister and and um uh, she was the first of five of us and she uh, of course grew up and Probably mum and dad were learning how to do this parenting thing, and she was learning how to be the first child of the family. And, and, and I, I gather in those times there was some conflict as she got into her teenage years, and she did some things she regretted, and probably mum and dad do too. And I, I know that she struggled to seek their forgiveness, and it wasn't until dad's deathbed, literally a month before he died, that she wrote a letter to my dad. Now, I don't know what the contents of the letter is, I just know that she wrote one and it was, had contained information like, Dad, would you just forgive me? Um, would you forgive me what I did and all the heartache and some of the pain I caused you? And, and to my knowledge, it was a great relief to my sister to be able to do that. Because for decades, folks, it had festered. And she just had to get it out. And uh, I think she's a better lady for it. I wish she would take the next step and understand that there is a God who ultimately is the only one who can forgive and console and heal from that. But hopefully that step will come. But, you know, why was she so much needing to do that? Because she just wanted, she saw the goodness of my dad and she wanted to be right with him before he passed from this life. And, you know, sometimes we've got to come to that point and understand that's what sin does. It wants to eat away and we've got to get it out. And we don't have to 
confess to the world. We just need to give it to God. We just need to bring it to Him. And you know, His mercy and grace is there. Sometimes we need to have people we trust that would receive it. It says, confess our sins to one another and God will bring you know, healing and health and wholeness. So sin is a terrible thing, would you agree? It destroys, it takes away, it messes up, it breaks down relationships. It's, it, it's just a, a thing that the world is craving to get rid of, but sometimes we don't, we just bury it. And there's only one person. See, we, had a, um, we have a Heavenly Father who sent His only Son to the cross for the opportunity for us not to you know, bury it or reflect it, but to locate our sin. We need to locate our sin somewhere. We all needed to locate it. The world just doesn't understand that sometimes. That's why God turned away from looking at Jesus, because all that guilt and shame rested on Jesus. He looked horrific with all the sins of the world on him. And God turning away was the manifestation of God's hatred of sin, not hatred of Jesus. And as he looked at him, he had to turn away. And that's when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew. It was a, ret- uh, uh, it was a um, rhetorical question. Jesus knew the answer. That's what a rhetorical question is. He knew the answer, but he just had to declare it. Why did he have to declare it? Because so it could be written down so that we could know the filthiness of sin. That even a God who was pure and a Jesus who was pure and never sinned because he was totally qualified to take the sins of the world, never sinned, tempted in all ways, never failed. And we know the reality of that is, is that God had to, even God had to turn away because the sin looked so filthy. Not only for the sin of past, but the sin of the future. Everything that I've ever said and done, what an incredible Jesus we had. You can't relocate it. You can't reflect it. You can't bury it. You've got to locate it somewhere. And, and you know what? This is how we do it. Because as we ask for forgiveness, let Christ take it away altogether. You know, there's a verse in the Bible. John the Baptist was along the Jordan one day and he saw Jesus. I think probably nearly for the first time he saw Jesus walking. And his opening statement and remarks about Jesus Christ, John the Baptist said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his opening remarks. Who takes away the sin of the world. What a great statement. And yet, I, I think it was quite prophetic from John. He didn't really, he kind of not spent much time talking to Jesus, and yet he makes that statement. How true. And I love the word take away because the take away sin means to loose, to put away, remove, away with, forgive, acquit, a pardon, exonerate, whitewash, and my personal favorite, dissolve. Because you can only dissolve the sins of my life in the blood of Jesus Christ. No other. It can't be buried. It can't be relocated. It can't be reflected. It'll always be there. It has to be dissolved. Jesus absorbed it on the cross. I was. I, I remember. I was. Uh, I was nine years old. Um, I was sitting at the front of my house in a, in a in a Bly Street. The street was called. Uh, the, the reason I re- can recall the details is because it was quite a day, it was quite an event in my life. And, and they tell us when sometimes you have an event that uh, is a bit, it, it stirs up your emotions, you remember the details so much better. And so I was nine, I was sitting with my, my mate Michael, he lived next door. Uh, we're sitting on the cement steps uh, of, uh, on the footpath, because our house 
that was on a hill and it went down to the road and there was the bitumen road going past. Now, Michael had just acquired um, something that I was incredibly uh, interested in. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a dart gun and it was a gun that um, had those little darts, oh, plastic, and had those little stoppers so you could lick them and they'd stick to the things. You know what I mean? You know the ones? And so I'd never seen this before. I'm nine. I mean, this is 1970, uh, 1972. And so him and I are sitting there. We, we're in the same classes, and, we're, and he's got this dart gun. And we were shooting things, and he would shoot it. I'd go and retrieve it and bring it back, and I'd have a go, and we'd shoot trees and shoot, you know, whatever. Try and shoot little lizards on the ground. And so Michael is, and I are sitting there, and this car is coming along. I never had any understanding of what he was about to do. He didn't tell me, but there, there was this wry smile that came across his face. And he, as the car went past, he pulled the trigger, and the dart went out and hit the windscreen of the car. My first reaction was, good shot. <laughs> I was pretty impressed. <laughs> he was pretty impressed. And then I saw the car pull up. <laughs> then I saw a man get out. We, w- so I went from this emotion of, a, of, of celebration to this emotion of we're busted, let's run. So we ran. I ran in, up my driveway into the front yard and hid behind. I remember it was a big hibis- hibiscus bush. You know the big hibiscus flowers? It was a big bush. Now, as this man's now come along the footpath. He's coming up the driveway. I think, oh, no. As he's coming up, my dad is walking down with a mystified look. He's looking at us hiding, and he's, he doesn't know who to address what are you guys? He goes to this man. He's some way away from us. And he, obviously, this man um, confronts him. They have a conversation. I don't know what the conversation was. I couldn't hear it. To this day, I don't know what the conversation was. I don't know what the man said to dad, what dad said to the man. But after about three minutes, the man turned around, walked back down, down the footpath, hopped in his car, drove away. My dad stood there for a moment. He walked back. He then walks over to us in the front yard behind the hibiscus bush. And I thought, I'm grounded. I'm going to cop it big time here. <laughs> My dad walked up to me and Michael, and he looked at us. And without even asking us what we did wrong, without even implying anything, without, uh, without even trying to work it all out, he had worked it out, obviously in the conversation with the man, he said to me, don't do it again. I said, I'm thinking, is that it? And he walked away. But his don't do it again was so strong that I thought, I'll never do that again. (laughs) My dad stood in the driveway of our house and absorbed the guilt (laughs) and in a sense the punishment and the, uh, the anger of what we should have received as young men. That man, had my dad had every right to bring that man over to us and let him give it to us. But he didn't. He, he, he stood his ground, absorbed it from the man. The man was happy enough and walked away. My dad came over to us and he had every right to say, you will not have dessert for, for three months or whatever was going to be the punishment. I've never known that to happen, to be honest. But anyway, all he said to me was, don't do it again. I felt like the woman now, as I read the Bible years later, I felt like the woman who'd been caught in adultery and, and Jesus been brought to Jesus and Jesus finally says to her, um, you know, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. I felt like dad must have read that passage and just decided he was going to give it to me that day, but I don't think he had. 
But that's how I, as I, every time I read that, I think of my moment. Now, I know I wasn't the one who pulled the trigger, but I was an accomplice. And I was just as guilty. So I, I, I just see the reality is that, uh, that, you know, sometimes we've got to understand the incredible gifting that God has given to us through Jesus Christ when He died on the cross. Jesus has, our sin can be relocated. He absorbs the punishment that we should receive. And yet we are, He then comes to us and says, you know, I don't condemn you. Just don't go and do it again. And I think we need to hear the don't do it again bit more than anything else these days because so often we can sometimes just do it again. And God, I think, feels the pain of that because he says every time you do it, he's just, just, you're eating a little bit more of your life up. Destroying a little bit more. And so, I, I, so, when, so in saying that, when God turned his back on Jesus Christ, oh, look, can I read this one verse, Second uh, um, Colossians 2.14? He cancelled the record of, is that it? Having wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What's he talking about? He's talking about the charges that were against us because of our sin. He's cancelled it. He's nailed it to the cross. I love that. He took it. We can, we can locate our sin on him. And it dealt with for good. So when God turned his back on Jesus Christ, he hung on the cross. He was showing humanity that sin is horrific and destructive. So much so that God couldn't even look at his own son. So in his son, he loved and the son he was so close to for that moment, God had to turn away. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was declaring that he was doing what no one else could do. And that was take away the sin of the world. He was qualified. We've had many good men, men and women go throughout the, rise up in the world and stand up at certain times in history, and we needed them to stand up. The Winston Churchills, so that you know, Germany didn't march into Britain, or the uh, Florence Nightingales, who, who created incredible medical procedures that have gone on now and still are used today, or you know, whoever, or the James Dobsons, maybe, who have, you know, have helped us raise our children over those decades. Praise God for all those type of people, but they were not qualified. They were qualified for what they were experts in but they weren't qualified to take sin only Jesus could and the greatest need wasn't just how to raise their kids or how to have better medical procedures the greatest need was to deal with the, the cancer of sin in our hearts and lives and Jesus says I'm the only one here we go the second thing this morning we'll move straight on why did God, why did Jesus say my God my God why have you forsaken me because God turned his back on him so that God would never have to turn his back on us. Hebrews 13, 5 says, he, him, he, it says, he himself said, I'll never leave you nor forsaken you. Could you just get it in your heart that, you know, God, that Jesus <coughs> both, will, Holy Spirit, will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a promise that we can stand on. He sees you in every part of every day. He's not, he, you know... He's there. And in your trial, He's there. In your good times, He's there. So when in good times, don't leave Him out of your life. Still acknowledge Him. And in your bad times, don't say, well, God's not here anymore. No, He's always there. He's always there. The interesting thing about, hum about Old Testament days was people would used to worship God and they'd locate Him to a certain place. 
And that, that, that's their understanding of God. And it wasn't wrong. They'd locate him, for instance, on a mountain in the wilderness where Moses got the Ten Commandments. Or they'd locate him, um, you know, in, in the makeshift tabernacle as they marched through the desert for 40 years. God's people. So God was there. And then, then times they'd locate him in the pillar of fire by night as he led them through the wilderness. Or by the cloud by day, he'd lead them. And then when they finally settled in Jerusalem, they located him in the Holy of Holies and the, the temple they built there in Jerusalem. They located God. Now, it wasn't wrong for them to do that. That's not wrong. But I just want you to say, don't have an Old Testament perspective about a New Testament Heavenly Father. The Old Testament wasn't wrong. It just enhances the reality that now we don't need a temple. You are the temple. His location is in you. He is with us all the time. And so when you face your trial and say, well, you know, God's not with me. No, He's always there. It's not that He's not there. It's just that you're not there with Him. We've walked away. He's always available. You say, doesn't he walk away when I do the wrong thing? Someone once said to me, oh, God leaves the car when you speed. Well, I'm glad he didn't because if I didn't have the conscience, Holy Spirit, conscience about my speeding, maybe I wouldn't slow down. But he's always there. He's always there. God's not here today, gone tomorrow. God's not in and out of our lives depending on how we get out of bed or how we feel that particular day. He's there. He's not, he's, he's not in and out of our lives depending on how high maybe our sin registers on the sin scale for that day. No, He's there. It's not that your sin isn't bad. He's just He's there. How would you be as a parent if you abandoned your child every time they'd done something wrong? So, well, you know, out you go. Go and find your own way of life. You just stole a cookie from the cookie jar. That's it. Three straight. You've done it three times now. Go. I mean, I know you're only four, but go and find your own way. Ridiculous, isn't it? But some of us think that's what God's like with us. Always drawing you. Always caring. Always there. Does that mean we need to take that for granted? Or don't take him for granted? We do. I'll run back to God when I need him. Oh, he'll be there. But gee, you'll mess up the life in between there now. <laughs> oh, it hurts. Why don't you just walk with him now? Continue to walk with him. So we need to be careful. So in, in this question uh, of, my God, where have you forsaken me? We see the perfect example of, God, of Jesus' trust and love for his Father under extreme trial. Why would Jesus say he was my God if his trust wasn't still in God, even though he feels abandoned? And Jesus was saying, "Is He's still my God? He's still Jesus? He's still um, a heavenly Father, even though he, I feel abandoned at this moment." Jesus emphasizes his trust and his passion of that moment by saying, "My God, my God, my God, my God." He says it twice. He says it twice. He says, "My God, my God." He wasn't. He wasn't saying to God, "I know I feel abandoned." But he was still declaring his trust. You're still my God. Have you ever heard someone say, that God of yours doesn't care for me? No, he's still your God. He's still your God. He was at the weakest moment and yet he could still declare that God is my God. Some Bible commentators actually literally say he was declaring interpretation, they believe, is my strength, my strength. My strength, my strength. I know that you've abandoned me, but you're still my strength. The Bible says, in our weakness, we can know his strength. I love that. 
because I feel, I feel pretty weak sometimes. Thus, he's still declaring God, thus proclaiming to us that if, the, if his trial of even death will not make him reject God, why would our, should our trial make God untrustable? Why would our trial, because I haven't faced death for, like Jesus did, but if Jesus can believe him and trust him, even in my trial, is God not still trustable? Of course he is. Job actually said this, Job who, who lost everything, he was a wealthy man, lost his cattle, lost his family, lost his land. I think he wanted to lose his wife, but she was still <laughs> alive. Um, you have to read it to understand that comment. He lost his children, he was, everything was destroyed, his wealth was no more, yet he said, you know what? He said, even though God you slay me, I will trust you. Even though you slay me, I will trust you, God. Wow. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was declaring that God had turned his back on him so that God would never turn his back on us. I'm glad of that. Here's the third one. And we're going to move on with this. Jesus says, you've forsaken me, God. Because Jesus always knew that for every Good Friday, there will come a Resurrection Sunday for those who trust in God. See, Good Friday is good because there was a Resurrection Sunday. That's why Good Friday is called Good Friday. And the interesting thing is um, that Jesus knew there was going to be a resurrection. Jesus knew the end result already. He knew that even though he felt abandoned by his heavenly father, uh, I think he declared it for it to be written by Matthew and Mark so that we would know all these things I'm just sharing with you now. But I, I think the truth was, he knew that even though he's declaring God's abandoning him, he knew that there was going to come a resurrection Sunday. Do you know that even though you face a Good Friday moment in life, there can come a resurrection Sunday in God for every circumstance, every situation? Because how did Jesus know this? Well, if you turn, there's a psalm called Psalm 22. David wrote it, and this is where Jesus was quoting what he said on the cross, it was word for word from Psalm 22, verse 1. Look at Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Isn't that what... See, David wrote a psalm, prophetic. The whole psalm is about Jesus' death on the cross. But the wonderful thing about Psalm 22 is David wrote it. He was talking about himself, but he didn't know. But it was prophetic for Jesus. And so God actually put this whole episode in place to give comfort to Jesus for his future when he knew one day he would hang on a cross, his loving son would die on a cruel Roman cross because Jesus, if he knew verse 1, folks, surely he knew the last four verses of the psalm as well because the last four, four verses of the psalm, I mean, if you read through verse 18, it says, they divided my garments among me, my clothing was cast as lots. It's, talking, it's describing the whole crucifixion scene. And verse 24 says, for he was not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, he, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be to you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. So Jesus, Jesus knew if, if he was going to quote verse 1, the whole psalm 
went through the whole issues of what happened at Calvary. And then at the end, it says, you know what? The poor will be satisfied. We will live forever. There was a resurrection Sunday. Jesus knew it. And he wants you to know it today. And that's why he declared, even though God, you've abandoned me, I know there's a better day coming. It was only three days away. And so I want to encourage you. The first day of Easter is Good Friday. Um, the day Jesus perished. <coughs> Sometimes in life when we're believing for something good to happen, it actually can perish. It can, it can look like God has abandoned you. It can look like it, it's finished. Maybe it's that child that you wish would just be sorted out, that relationship be restored, that job you're looking for, that sickness you've got that you thought you should have never happened, that seemingly lost hope about something. It can all seem like it is dead or at best dying. There's a story in 1 Kings uh, chapter 16 and, verse, and chapter 17, and the story goes like this. There was a woman who was married to a hus her husband, usually you are, um, but um, what happened was is that she couldn't have children. And so what we see is Elijah would come into that area and he would stay at her place. They built a room for him. He would sleep in that bed and sleep in that room. And Elijah uh, was there and, uh, and Elijah said to them, this time next year, you'll have a son in your arms. And, you know, uh, so it happened. She had a son. This time, exactly as the prophet Elijah said, they were overjoyed. Now the little boy's growing up. Some years later, he's maybe four, five or six. He's out in the field with his father and he's um, helping his dad in some way. And um, what happens is, is that the little boy has prob uh, what was probably a brain aneurysm. And he says, my head, my head. And he drops dead, the little boy. And so they called for the boy's mother and she said, put him in the prophet Elijah's room on his bed. Now see this. Here is the promised child that Elijah said was going to have, she was going to have, and she did, and now he's dead. This is the promise. Is now dead. This is what you thought was going to happen is now not happening. This is the hope that you'd placed in is now seems a little hopeless but the awesome thing about that is that we serve a resurrection God church come on and Elijah went into the room and the boy was raised to life and they, Elijah brought him out and in the same way there are times when life goes pear-shaped for you and me and it looks like all is lost and there's a bad report there's a bad thing comes up but Jesus reminds us that God may feel uh, that God may feel like he has abandoned us but all, and, and all is lost. But Jesus knew that it wasn't the end of the story and he would be raised to life just like David stated in Psalm 22, verse 26, that there was a life. So, I, you know, you know the circumstances of your life. You know the situations. And there's valleys and there's hills and there's valleys and there's hills. But you know what? In the valleys, it's not time to abandon God. Because sometimes we love the hill, we love the, we love the moments of, of where everything's going well, and we're flying high, and then the valley comes. It's not a time to say, God, you've abandoned me. No, He's never abandoned you. 
It's not you know, the valley because you've got to remember, in the valley in Jesus, see, what's the Saturday for? We can think, you know, well, there was the Friday, it was the Good Friday, Jesus died, and then there was the Easter Sunday, that's when he resurrected. What's the Saturday for? Why didn't he just resurrect him on the Saturday? No, this, and we can think God's not working in this Saturday, but here is the truth for someone today. When you feel like everything's dead and buried and, and it seems like God is not doing anything, just remember, on the Saturday, Jesus went down to hell, and he grabs the keys to hell and death, and he took authority over the devil and he came out. That's why he was able to come out victorious on Sunday. He was working and doing something. And in the same way, in the midst of things when it seems like nothing's happening in your life, it's all silent, like God's not speaking to you or you can't seem to hear him. I want to tell you, he's doing something. You just can't see it. Because it's just Saturday. And I believe Jesus... He said it, he declared it, so that we would understand that maybe there's more to understand, so that we would know that he took the sin that no one could take, that he, he was abandoned by God so that God would never abandon us, and, and that we would realize that even though we're going through a valley, what seems like a shadow of death, that there is always a resurrection Sunday on the horizon when we trust in him, however that may unfold. Do we cling to the rocks of our, a rock of our soul, Jesus, and still trust in the midst of trial? Or do we stand on the sands of indifference and wander in and out of His presence, only bothering to embrace Him in the good times? I pray not. I pray that we receive Him. A year and a, about a year ago, I, I was sitting right here. It was about quarter to eight. I was just spending some time in prayer. That door was open. And as I sat there, a man just walked straight into the church and sat down. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just sat down and his head, head in his hands and he was partly weeping, doing something. And I thought, okay, what's happening? So I said to him, hey, buddy, you okay? He says, no, my wife is leaving me. I said, okay, let's talk about that. And he shared with me and he talked with me. And then he described a remarkable situation that had unfolded that morning. He was driving along um, from somewhere out there at, um, you know, Emma, you know, Kirkwood, and as he was driving along um, that road through there, whatever, which one, um, Glen Line, it goes into, and he said, I just had this in sudden impulse, I needed to turn right at this roundabout, so he turned it right, and then he said, I felt like I needed to turn left, he turned in Leamington Drive, and then right in McCann Street, and he says, I saw this building, I thought, is that a church? He drove into the car park, hopped out, and he could see the sign of the front, he thought, that's a church, I'll just go in there and pray, and he walked in the door, and he sat down and prayed, so we spent, you know, another hour together, I prayed with him. I thought, you know, I said to him, mate, do you realize what God is doing? He's leading you to himself. He's directing you. Do you realize what he's done? And he said, yes, I could see that. And so over the next eight months, I spent numerous times, probably five or six times we met and I talked with him and spoke with him and encouraged him. He would come to me and encourage me because he says, you know what, I'm going to, because he found out his wife was actually meeting with another man. <laughs> and so he says, I'm forgiving them. I said, you're going to forgive them? That's the best. I thought, mate, you've got, he says, and he'd share with me these verses and these encouragement and, this, and, and, and he'd share all these things. I thought, you've got more of a grip of God sometimes than I think I have. It's amazing the grace on his life and the love he had for his wife, in, even though she was, had an affair. I think, mate, and so we would, I met his wife. And didn't talk anything deep. 
But, you know, I thought, buddy, God has got a, such a hold of your life. He directed you literally to this building, not so much to a building, but just to talk to someone. God is on your life. And now I just wanted, it's, but, you know, the, the thing I, I, I suppose has challenged me is just this week I was in Woolworths and I saw my friend walk in. And he actually he came to church here a couple of times. And then he drifted away. And I thought, where is he? And so I saw him walk into Woolworths. And, he, and I came, he came up to me. We met and I talked to him. And there was no light in his eyes. There's no... That passion and the way God had directed him was kind of had gone. I'm not trying to judge him wrongly because I, I'm still his friend. And I'm believing for a wonderful outcome in the future. Because God met that man. And God was gracious to that man. And yet we see that he again has been the one that has said God just leave me alone because what's happened now is he's gone on with his life his wife has left him totally and he's found a lady and they're together now I thought buddy you just filled that gap in your life with somebody else that doesn't it needed to be God you're filling it with God and now you've put God to the side and you've filled it with something else now, we were in a public place in the grocery section of Woolworths, so I couldn't kind of, you know, talk deeply with him. But I saw him walk away from me, and I thought, there's going to come a day, I'm going to believe for him, that he'll have that sense of what God's doing again, and he'll remind himself of God's faithfulness, as we sang this morning, and he'll come back. Because God, even though we abandon God, God doesn't abandon us. And he's the only one who can deal with our sin. And he's the only one who will say there is a resurrection Sunday when you face a good Friday. So can we stand as the musos come? You've been very patient. I want to encourage us today. God is incredibly good. And he said, my son, uh, sorry, my, my son, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, it was for a very good reason. It was for us. We were the reason that God forsook his son. We were the, we were the target of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the truth. So as we come today, I, I just want to ask you a question. Do you need to come and return to the Lord? Or do you need to say yes to Jesus for the very first time? Maybe you've got a belief in God, but you just need to, you just need to acknowledge it publicly. Say, yep, that's me. I'd love to just pray for you this morning, if it's you today. And I, I wonder if we could just close our eyes, bow our heads just for a moment. And let me ask you, do you just need to say yes to Jesus Christ? Get your life right again or for the first time? Could you lift your... Just give me a wave this morning. I acknowledge that hand. Whether you're young here, you know, and you've lived under your parents' faith, and you need to confess, you need to own it yourself, or whether, whatever. I see the hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Put your hands down. Thank you. Can we, as a church, just by how about we pr pray? And you've heard us do this before, but we're going to ask, we're just going to say a prayer. Make it your own prayer, particularly for those. There was people just putting their hands up this morning for, and they're just wanting to say, make it your prayer. But how about together we do that? Every time someone prays this prayer from this altar, I pray it again. 
not because I, I, I lessen the commitment I have, but I just, just want to declare I need you, Jesus. But I want particularly for those who have just raised their hands to pray this prayer. Could we Let me make it simple. I'll re say it. You repeat it. Make it your own. Heavenly Father. Oh, I can't hear you. Heavenly Father. We come to you today just as we are. But we're thankful you don't leave us that way. Please receive me as I receive Jesus. As I acknowledge Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. So I confess with my mouth in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe in my heart that He died and He rose to take my sin. I receive that now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, I pray for those who raised their head particularly this morning, that it would be solidified, it would be so strengthened in their hearts and their lives of that response and commitment that you've, they've made to you today. I thank you for it. I pray that you would help them to continue to walk in your ways. Lord, as we would all, help us, Lord, not just to take your word and glibly, uh, you know, just go over it and think, that's nice, but Lord, to see what you're saying and to live that way you want us to live for your glory and your honor. Father, we ask for your help because we live in a world that wants to mold us into its mold. Help us not to be, Father, molded into that mold, but to live the way that you want us to live. And we ask this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Come on. How about we just sing this song? How about we just give a hand for those who respond to the Lord? Because I think God gets excited about people who respond to Jesus.